wisdom, during the special, wisdom was screaming at me to not preach this message in its entirety. And I'm sure you're saddened to hear that I'm going to make this originally one part message into two parts. I'm not quite sure yet how I'm going to do it. Um, I'll know when to stop, I think. But um, I wasn't preparing on the impromptu testimony service, and, and, but I like that kind of stuff. Amen. I like when we depart from the schedule and just, just kind of Amen. act like a family with one another. I think sometimes we just need to feel like we're part of a family. And when we do those kinds of things, it's more important than, than me giving a, a full-blown-out message. So I am preaching all day next Sunday, so I'll, I'll, you'll hear the second part of this, which in a way saddens me because it's, it's deep in me. I think it can help some folks, but, but I think that maybe if we just take it in two portions, it'd be wiser for the night. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. <clears throat> And we're just going to look at a few verses to start. This is what, what we would call in preaching a topical message, meaning that, that we're going to pick a topic and then we're going to support it with Scripture. It's not going to be one where we take Scripture out of its context, um, but it is going to be one where we use multiple passages of Scripture supporting a topic instead of taking one passage of Scripture and exegeting that one text. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Not traditionally my favorite way to preach, but I think it would be helpful um, for the message tonight. 1 John chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse number 9. If we receive the witness of men, this is an important statement, the witness of God is greater. Now look up here for, the, for a second. Growing up, I can't even remember a time Whenever my dad would tell me something and I didn't believe him. Unless he was clearly joking around or being sarcastic or something like that. I would believe my dad because I trusted my dad. I received his witness. And John is saying if we receive the witness of men, then listen, the witness of God is greater. Because as great as my earthly father could be, as trustworthy as he could be in my eyes, my heavenly father has never lied, has never exaggerated, has never overspoke, has never spoke too soon, never too late, never too much, never too little. He's trustworthy. Now go on in verse 9. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave his son. And this is the record. In other words, John is saying, believe this, that God hath given to us eternal life. Amen. Man, that's a good. And this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life, and he that hath not the son hath not life. Why write that? Verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Those that have already claimed faith in Christ. That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. God is always right. He can always be trusted. When he says he saves you and gives you eternal life, there is no exaggeration in that. He's not being dramatic. That's exactly what he means. When he gave his son and you believed in his son, he gave you life. 
in that moment. I want to preach to you for the next two Sundays now a message with this title, Will I Ever Know? What do you mean, will I ever know? Will I ever know if I'm really saved? Will I ever know that? That's the question I asked myself for nearly 10 years of my young life. Will I ever know? Now, I, I want to disarm you from the get-go and say this before I get into the message. Just because you doubt doesn't mean you're lost. In fact, I would say the majority of people who doubt their salvation are actually already saved. Because God isn't the author of confusion. God doesn't send doubt. God sends Holy Spirit conviction. And his conviction is most of the time unmistakable and undeniable. There is a huge difference between God-sent conviction and devil-sent doubt. If you sit in the, in the chair and you listen to a message on hell or a message on the rapture, and inside of your heart you're thinking, man, I hate wrestling with this every time I hear one of them kind of messages. Let me tell you where, where if it's doubt, it's coming from the evil one. God is not trying to confuse you. He's not. The devil's trying to confuse you. The devil's trying to get you to doubt. I'm going to be very transparent in the first part of this message, exact, specifically tonight. So transparent that I'm probably going to risk appearing to you kind of weird. Seriously. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to be transparent with some struggles that I've been through from about age 9 or so to age 19 that went very, very deep and personal. And some things that I did out of, out of, out of, as a result of deep, deep doubt that, that almost seemed like it's just out of place. Just weird. With God's help, I preached this message in, in part. I preached this uh, to three different groups of young people this summer. I had no idea, I couldn't even anticipate what God would do through it. But you can ask my wife, who traveled with me this summer. This was the obvious message that God used in teenagers' lives more than any message I preached all summer long. And I had to preach over 30 times. And so I, I, I think it, it, it can be a help to some in here that do doubt your salvation, have doubt your, doubted your salvation, and some who are even scared to admit that you do. I, I do need to say this as well before I get into the message, that um, I've always wanted to preach a message like this and just never known how I can quite put it together biblically. And, and then I was upstairs at Impact last year and heard Brother Paul uh, preach a series to the young people on doubt about three or four weeks long where he really took his time. And he brought out some things that were so helpful to me and to the young people, and I asked him, could I use that this summer when I travel? And then I text pastor and asked him to send me every resource he has on this issue, and he did, and I borrowed some of that. And so this is a message that, that, is, that has been written in part by some other people, and I've, put in, I've, I've placed together their wisdom and my experience and then a little bit of what God has showed me. So let's just pray together real quick, and, and I don't think the message will be too long tonight. Father, I love you.
Help us, would you please? Lord, I pray that you'd remove pride from both behind the pulpit and in the chair. Sometimes it can be hard to admit we struggle with things like this. Uh, Lord, but I pray that you would help us to be honest. And, and, and then, Lord, I, I pray that for those that have never doubted, I pray they would just be in prayer tonight for those that have struggled with that. And those that are struggling with that, I pray that you would give them just some direction, some help in your most precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Pastor said this, the bigger the potential for loss, the greater the need for assurance. Now think about that. It's a great statement. For example, I have two vehicles that are covered by Candy Prater insurance. One is a 2006 Saturn View with about 110,000 miles on it. One is a 2009 Toyota Venza with about 90,000 miles on it. If you just look at the outside of those vehicles, you're going to quickly notice that one is of greater value than the other. Jenny happens to drive the one of greater value because I'm a great husband. <laughs> Which one do you reckon I have full coverage insurance on? The newer one, hers. Why? Well, because the car's more valuable. Which one would you be more apt to spend time looking for, a $1 bill or a $100 bill? Well, the answer's obvious, the $100 bill. Why? Because of its value. Okay, let's say this, hypothetically. You lost your dog, and on the same day you lost your cat. Which one are you going to spend more time looking for? The dog, of course. Cats have absolutely no value in this world. They are not to be insured. They have nine lives anyway. The bigger the potential for loss, the greater the need for assurance. And if that's true for material things like cars and houses and money, how much more do you think it's true for your soul? Truth of the matter is you can lose your car and you can lose your house and you can lose your phone and you can lose all your money and still go to heaven. But if you lose your soul, you've lost the one thing that is of any eternal value. That's why Jesus said, For what shall it profit of man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For that reason, I do want to preach this series about the assurance of your salvation. Here's what I figured out, not just with young people, with old people alike. Many of us struggle or have struggled with the assurance of salvation. I bet if we took an honest survey in this room, and I've talked to many of you about it, if we took an honest survey of this room, I bet you the majority would say, there has been a time when I haven't been 100% sure that I'd go to heaven. I understand there are people like my dad who got saved as a teenager, and when he's been walking me through this, this, this struggle with doubt, there are times when he even admitted to me, man, son, I just have a hard time grasping this or understanding this because it's hard for me to point back to a time when I really struggled with that. I understand there are some that, that, that maybe get saved a little bit later and man, there's just no doubt in your mind you were lost and now you're saved. But my testimony it just isn't quite like that. For a long time in this church, even probably six or seven or eight years into my ministry here, I claimed that my salvation was when I was 13 years old. And I would throw that into songs and sermons and testimonies and all of that. 
And all along, I, I'm thinking the reason why I, I, I claim that as my salvation date is because I know the exact date. And so I can write it down, I can go back to it, it really helps me to know the exact day of it. And so that's the one I'm going to claim. I know I'm saved, I, I got, you'll hear that next week, I got assurance when I was 19 years old. But, but I, I figured to have a date that I could go to would be a little more credible in people's eyes. And so it's better to claim that one. All along, I knew deep, 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 deep down in my heart when I got saved. I don't know the date. I'm kind of mad at my mom for not writing that in my little Bible. <laughs> I don't even know the night. I just know where I was. I was at 326 Beach Street, right back here. And I walked down the hall of my house. I can picture walking down the hall, being so nervous, and then turning into my mom and dad's room, which was tucked on that side of the house, and, and saying, I want to get saved. And my dad getting out of bed, and all he had at that time was a big, full-color family Bible. I think every family had them back then. And we, we knelt on the edge of the bed together, and he showed me some verses, and then I repeated a prayer after him. I can't remember what we said, and that's troubled me to this day. I can't remember the date that's troubled me to this day. The fact that I had to repeat after you troubled me to this day. Because I heard so many messages about stuff that made me think that with that specific testimony, because it's a little bit vague, there's no way I could be saved. But I know for sure I got saved on that night. There's a long time I struggled with that. And the reason why I'm, I'm slightly emotional is because, and I've talked to my wife about this, I just, I feel like I've almost told a lie to the church. Just because I wanted to look more credible. And so I'm risk appearing being a little bit dramatic. I, I get that. But about nine years old, it had to have been a couple years later, I remember that, that Brother Landis brought in a guy to preach a series on prophecy. And I remember that, that he preached a really scary message. It's one of those about getting left behind. So I'm not necessarily, I'm not against preaching that way so long as it's done with the right spirit and in line with the text and all this kind of stuff. And I, I can't even remember whether he preached it right or wrong or how it was. But the truth is, some people will get left behind. Okay, so I'm not saying that was a wrong message. But that, at that moment, it totally triggered my propensity to doubt. And I got so scared when he, when he talked about planes in the air and all of a sudden the pilot's getting caught up and it going down. And trains going off the tracks. And cars going into one another. Do I need to scare you anymore? You get the idea. So, you know, I was just a couple years older than my son. That scares a kid. And I just, I held that in. I didn't talk to my mom and dad about that for a little bit. 
And then a little bit later, I, I, I started to visit with my mom and dad just, just a little bit. But I was just so embarrassed by the fact that I didn't know because I was the preacher's kid. I was kind of supposed to. And I already got baptized and that kind of thing. And, and then on, on a Wednesday night at a Bible conference at age 13... I was sitting on the front row. In fact, I was sitting there because I was in trouble trying to get out of the service. I was helping Cindy Knutson in the gym, and I stayed over there to help clean so I could miss the preaching. My dad walked over there after the song service and said, you know, get your blessed assurance back over to, that's the, the hymn-rated uh, edition, but get back over to the auditorium, put me on the front row, and then Brother Moeller preached that night. I just, I remember it was out of the book of Jeremiah, and I don't know if I was convicted about a future spanking or, or if I, I was really wrestling with doubt, and I just, I went forward, and Brother Mike Mills, my youth pastor at the time, came, and, and I made another profession of faith, and the church came by and shook my hand like we used to do up front, if you remember that, and everybody's happy and great and, and all of that, and I'm like, yes, I'm saved, and I get baptized again the second time. And that lasts for, for about a year, and then I, I start struggling with doubt again. And I would do things like, like at nighttime, I mean, I, I could not sleep sometimes. And there were times when I'd go wake up my dad, or go wake up my mom a, as a teenager. I mean, I would have done anything to sleep on their floor. That's how scared, I know I'm looking weird, but that's how scared I was. Like legit, I thought that that if it was so quiet that I missed the rapture. And so there were times, and they don't even know this, but there are times when I would go and I would look in my mom and dad's room to make sure they were still there. That's how scared I was about this thing. 14 years old, 15 years old, something like that. And there were times I'd wake my dad up and I'd be crying. I'd say, I don't know if I'm saved. And, and he would come and he'd walk me through and, and he would use visual illustrations, one of which I'll use next week. And he would try to help me, and then he always had the right words to say to kind of help me be able to go to sleep. And I'd go to sleep, and I, I, would, I would wake up, and it, it would be good. I'd go to school, and I'd forget about it like kids forget about it, and I would just go forward with life. And then a preacher would preach a message on hell. It would start over. And then youth camp came. And it really kicked in at youth camp. Especially when guys like Mike Puthers were walking forward and getting saved. I'm like, dude, you've been saved, man. What are you walking forward to getting saved for? When guys like Brother K get saved, he's my teacher. He's my camp counselor. If they're not saved, there's no way I'm saved. No, you see how these things are happening? And I, I would be miserable. My dad would talk to me. So I surrendered to the ministry at age 17. I... I'll never forget that night. Knew God wanted me to go to the ministry, go to Heartland Baptist Bible College. Kind of, if you enroll there, you're supposed to be saved. <laughs> and I enroll there, and I'm doubting my salvation like crazy there. I make it through the first semester and come home for Christmas, and I go back, and I had a, a plane ticket bought for Washington, Seattle, Washington, where I was going to go with my best friend, Adam Wilder, over spring break. I don't know if you guys remember this, but I was going to, I already paid for it. it was, maybe you paid for it, I'm not sure, but it was paid for. 
and I was going to go with them to hang, hang out at spring break in Washington. And I don't know what hit, I can't remember if it was a chapel message or what triggered it. Um, but I started to doubt. And I'm talking in a deeper way. It was a spiritual warfare going on with me. I'd call my dad from a distance, and I'd say, man, I don't know what to do. I, this is crazy. I'm not going to go talk to people because I'm on a singing group, a traveling group that recruited students for the college, and you're kind of supposed to be on save before, save before you get on one of them for sure. And there's no way I'm talking to people about this, and my dad's trying to talk me through it. And I get sick. You ever worried yourself sick? Like literally, I worried myself sick. I didn't go to classes for a couple days. And then... Something happened to me that I've only read about and heard about and insensitively made fun of people for growing up. It was depression. Something I've never felt in my life. When I say that, I wasn't just sad. I wasn't just discouraged. I wasn't just down in the dumps. I, I closed the blinds to my room. I kept the light off in my room. I, I, I did not go to work. I did not get out of bed. I, I had no idea you could feel this down, like this confused. There's no way I would have went to church. I did not want to be around people. And finally, I, I convinced myself to tell my buddy, I'm sick and I can't go with you, I'm gonna go home. My mom and dad aren't even home. They're in Cincinnati, Ohio on a preaching trip. So I got to stay with Brother Miss Landis. And I call my dad sleeping on the couch in the living room. And I'm like, dude, can you at least come home? And he's like, well, I got to preach, man. What do I do? Read the book of 1 John. So I said, okay, I'm just going to trust him. Well, I go and start reading 1 John. And I don't know if you've ever read 1 John when you're doubting your salvation, but that doesn't help if you're not good at interpreting verses off the page. You'll see that in a second. Here's why. Because it says if you sin, you're not saved. What? I sin. I'm not saved. Why did you have me read 1 John? If you don't like a brother, you're not saved. Well, I didn't like my brother at the time. There's no way I'm saved. And so my parents come home, and again, they give me the golden words to go finish the semester. I travel on Glorybound that summer. We go west coast. It's July 14th. It's my birthday. We find our way back in Colorado under the tent at Silver State Baptist Youth Camp where we're singing. I turned 19 that day. My parents show up at the back of the tent, surprise me, while I'm singing mid-song. It was a really, really cool time. And... We sit with each other about the second row in the tent that night. A man by the name of Brother Bill Mitchell, powerful youth speaker, was preaching that night under the tent. And you'll never guess the title of his message. Pretenders. Pretenders. At the opening of his message, he brought on a kid that looked like a skateboarder. He walked like a skateboarder. Talked like a skateboarder. Brought his skateboard up to the stage. And Brother Mitchell had us all convinced that he went and recruited this kid in Denver. And this kid has, has agreed to come to camp and do tricks for us under the tent. 
And so everybody was on the edge of their seat and like, come on, man, show me what you got. And, and he goes to do what they would call like an ollie, a basic move with a skateboard, and he can't do it. Brother Mitchell like, come on, do what you said you could do, and he couldn't do it. Well, lo and behold, Brother Mitchell had just went and pulled a random kid, dressed him in skateboard clothes, put on skateboard shoes, gave him a skateboard, and told him how to walk like a skateboarder and talk like a skateboarder. When he came up, he was just a pretender. You get the power of that illustration? And so Brother Mitchell looked at all of us under the tent and said, Son, you're pretending. Well, the invitation happens. Our bass singer is a preacher's son like I was. His name is Dennis Fountain. I see him walk the aisle. And he kneels down at an altar. And I mean, he's, he's out of control, emotional and broken. And guess what happened in Dennis's life that night? He got saved. Yeah, I wasn't saying amen. I mean, that was a great thing. But that... You understand that illustration, that message, a guy on my same group getting saved. If, if he's not saved, I'm not saved. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Before I left for that summer, I went into the vice president's office. This is where I'm going to appear to be very, very weird if I haven't already. His name's Jeff Coates. And I could not, I could not deal with this any longer. That's where we left for the summer. And I went in and I was crying and I said, Brother Copes, I need to get saved. I mean, I was just ready for it to end. So if I could just pray a prayer, then I don't care what people think of me. I'll get saved. And so here's what I did. He's like, let's get it done. So he comes out from around his desk, and me and him kneel at a chair. And he says, do you know what to say? I said, yep. And so I started praying the sinner's prayer. And literally 10 seconds into it, I stopped. And I looked at him, and I said, I, the, something's not right. I'm saved. Well, I thought you said you weren't saved. I know, I did. But I'm saved. I can't go on. I, I'm, I am just massively confused. I know I'm saved. And he gave me this book and these verses in 1 John to read. <laughs> right? Then I go to this camp and all of this happens. And that's where I'm going to put the brakes on the story. It gets really good from there, doesn't it, Dad? But, but... But for a long time, I'm just, I'm just telling you, it was, it was miserable for me. Now, I don't know if, if, if there would be one or two or more than that in here. That maybe you find yourself kind of in that same spot. Where you doubt and then it kind of gets better and then you doubt again and it gets better and you doubt again and it gets better. Maybe you wouldn't get to the point of depression or weirding out like I was weirding out. But, but maybe in your heart you're just sick and tired of struggling with this doubt. Then let me answer two questions. One tonight and one next Sunday night. First question is why do I doubt? In other words, why does this happen? And then next Sunday I'll talk about how do I get assurance. And I'll give you the latter part of my testimony. Brother Paul really, really helped me here. Like really helped me with this. And, and I'm very thankful for his wisdom in this. Here's why, the first reason, because the devil attacks your mind. The Bible talks about the wiles of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. The word wiles means the trickery of the devil. In Ephesians 6, talks about the fiery darts of the wicked. I believe that one of those darts that the devil most often uses, 
One of his favorite tricks against God's people is the dart of doubt. And here's where the devil most often attacks, your mind. Because 2 Corinthians 10, he calls these wicked imaginations. You know what imaginations are, right? We tell our kids, just have an imagination. In other words, think, of, think up something that is just not real. But that it's fun, or it's, it, you wish it was possible. That's what the devil does. He puts these thoughts in our, our mind that aren't necessarily real. And if we don't deal with them rightly, here, here's what they turn into. Strongholds. Literal fortresses in our mind that, that we can't get rid of. The devil is a master at playing mind games with us, and so he'll bring questions into our mind about our salvation that make us think we're not really saved. This is where Brother Paul really helped me. Questions like this. What day did I get saved? You know, this happens a lot during testimony time. Sometimes we'll do it, and I, I, I'm not reluctant to do it, but, but the more I do it, the more I, I have Sympathy for people that, that might struggle with this because a lot of times I'll say, I remember the day you got saved and, and you'll, you'll hear September this and October this and November this and January this and a lot of times people are thinking, man, I don't have a date. This happened a lot when, when I heard preachers say, hey, listen, if you've met the President of the United States of America, you'll never forget it, bless God. Implying if I forgot the exact day I got saved, then I probably don't got it. It doesn't help that we sometimes sing, it was on a Monday, somebody touched me. And then the Monday people stand up. It was on a Tuesday, somebody touched me. Tuesday people stood up. See, back in the day when I was kind of fibbing about the date of my salvation, I always had a day. I was a Wednesday person. I never wanted to be one of them one-day people. Because we add a verse on, if you're not saved between Monday and Sunday, well, you save one day, so just stand up with the rest of us. Well, because my mom failed to put the date in my Bible, I'm a one-dayer. I don't know if it was on a Monday or on a Tuesday. And that ticked me off, frankly, for a long time. Let me say this. You're not saved because you remember the day. You're saved because you remember you were a sinner in need of a Savior and you placed your trust in Christ. You don't have to remember the date, but it's important to remember the place. Not when did you get saved. Where? Where? We should all have a story that surrounds our salvation. Doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be dramatic. But maybe the better question to ask in the future, Pastor, is where were you? Not when, where. And if you can't point to a place where you met Christ. Well, it was at VBS for me. It's on the edge of my dad's bed for me. It was at a revival service on a Wednesday night for me. It was at a youth camp for me. That's what's important to remember. Here's the second mind game. What did I say? Because maybe you hear an amazing testimony, or should I say a lie, of someone who says, I went to the altar with brother so-and-so, and I said, God, here I am. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I know you died for me. You were buried, yet rose again on the third day. And the best I know how, I want to ask you to save my soul. That's probably not what they said. That's what's on the back of a track. That's the best thing they could quote to act like they're brilliant. 
I don't know what I said. I don't know what I was wearing. I don't know any of those kind of details. Brother Paul used this illustration. And I would ask you the same thing. How many, raise your hand, how many in here are married? Raise your hand. You're married. All right, put your hand down. Can you quote with absolute certainty and accuracy your wedding vows word for word? That you quoted on that day. I can barely do it when I'm having to repeat two words after the preacher. Let alone quote them. Well, if you can't remember that, does that mean you're, you're not married? No, I'm telling you, I'm married. I'm married because I got a woman that I go to bed with every single night. And if you don't go to bed with yours and you say you're married, you, you should start going to bed with yours. That wasn't in the notes, but that's how I know I'm married. If she slept on the couch and I slept in the bed because I ain't sleeping on the couch, I paid for that bed and I paid for that house like she does too. Oh, mercy, I'm way off track now. I'm just saying. See, that's why I stick to my notes. Squirrel, man. But I just, I know I'm married. The point is not remembering what you said. The point is remembering what happened. You were a sinner in need of a Savior, and you trusted Christ. Here's the third mind game. How did I feel? You hear a testimony like, man, I felt like a, a big old heavy backpack full of rocks fell off me, and I could fly. But you don't remember feeling that exact way. Maybe there are a lot of days where you don't feel safe. Like when your preacher preaches a scary message, you don't feel saved. When you're living a season of a backsliding or sin, public sin or secret sin, you don't go to bed feeling saved. There are a lot of days I don't feel saved. You cannot base your salvation on a feeling. They change so easily. Here's the next mind game. Did I really mean it? This is what I really struggled with. Because if I couldn't remember what I said, and if I couldn't remember the exact date, then how in the world can I claim that I really meant it? Because I would see other teenagers like me that I would go on the same bus with, go to the same camp with, sleep in the same cabin with, and they would walk forward, and they would get saved, and they'd come back for a camp testimony, and they would say something like this, man, when I was seven years old, I made a profession, but I don't think I really meant it, and so I just knew I wasn't saved this year, and I went and I got saved, and, and I meant it this time. Well, then I'm thinking, well, I was seven years old when I made my profession, there's no way I meant it if you didn't mean it. So I said the prayer when I was 13, and then I tried to say it again when I was 19, 18. Think about it. What does it really mean to mean it? Oh, is there a scale for how much you actually mean something? Like when I tell my wife I love you, is there like a 1 through 10 scale? Well, I really mean it. I'm an 8 today, or I'm a 1 today. I don't, I, listen, when, when you got saved, where, I mean, some days, when I look back at it, some days I feel like I was at a, like a, a, an eight. But then some days I'm thinking, there's no way I'm at an eight. I don't even remember what I said. I got to be down at about a five or a four. But wait, I remember how I felt walking down that hall, that conviction that was on my heart. Man, I got to be saved because the Holy Spirit draws you, the preacher said. I'm at a nine. But planes are going to crash in the rapture, and you might be in one of those. I'm at a two. Are you seeing how these mind games will drive you crazy? 
Here, here, here's, here's the last one. Did I really change? See, this is another one I really struggled with. I was seven years old and I was a pretty good kid with a tender heart. I'm not bragging on myself. That was the truth. I had a tender heart. I sinned a lot more after I was saved than when I, before I got saved. So when I heard 2 Corinthians 5.17 preached, you know, if, if, you, if you get saved, you become a new creature in Christ, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new, and preachers would just get spitting mad about people that didn't change. I'm thinking to myself, I didn't change at all, I got worse. No, when I heard testimonies of alcoholics and drug addicts, I would think to myself, that's just the opposite of my testimony. They were bad, got saved, and then got good. I was good, got saved, and got bad. Here's the truth I finally realized. The same amount of grace that saved someone out of that kind of sin is the same amount of grace that as a seven-year-old boy saved me from that kind of sin. The question to ask yourself is not, has there been this huge dramatic change in my life? Maybe you should ask yourself this question. Do I desire change? Because you'll never become sinless. You might sin more. Because the devil's really after you now. But I'll tell you what changes. You begin to view your sin differently. You see, saved people backslide. Saved people commit adultery. Saved people are addicted to drugs. Saved people rebel and walk away from God. Saved people are, are, are laying inside of a prison cell tonight. Listen, our works didn't save us. And we got to be careful about overemphasizing that they prove that. Because we have a real enemy. You hearing me? And he can take a person who's sitting on the front row, singing in the choir, teaching a Sunday school lesson, and he can take them down a path of secret sin and destructive addiction and even to a prison house in weeks or months. And if we're not careful, if we carry that principle all the way through, we're going to say there's no way they were saved. We aren't there to make that kind of decision. If they place their faith in Christ, they're saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved if they don't mess up afterwards. Let's quit getting across that message. Let's be patient. No, I understand if someone gets saved and then you just, they fall off the face of the earth and it's like they're never willing to get baptized, they're never willing to uh, identify with the, with the body of Christ, they're never willing to serve people. I would question whether or not their desires changed. But there were many times as a teenager where I went through seasons of being backslidden and not even wanting Christ and playing the church game and I began to think when preachers would preach that verse, there's no way based on how my life is right now that I could be a child of God. And so I'd get my act together for a little bit so I would start thinking I was saved. No, your works didn't save you and they don't keep you saved. We're saved by the wonderful grace of God. And if you're in a season of life where you are backslidden, your season of life where you haven't picked up your Bible for yourself in months, your season of life where church is just a to-do on your list and it's not done out of devotion, listen to me, that doesn't mean you're not saved. It could mean that you're just away from the fold. We've had many people in our congregation that are sitting even here tonight where they grew up in this church, they left this church, lived in sin, and now they're back in this church. 
and they never had to get saved again. My brother's one of them. You ask my dad, we tried to get him to admit he was lost. He would never. I'm telling you, you look at that kid's life through high school, and you're saying there ain't no way he's a child of God. He's a child of the devil. And he's laughing at me in heaven. Don't feel sorry for him. You look at him, he's like, no, I heard my dad say, there's no way you can be saved, boy. And I'm like, amen. Sit in the hell. My dad got his preaching, preaching on, man. Felt better, better about his anger when he busted out the Christianese. I get it, I get it. I've done it before, too. Right. Try to convince him, son, there's no, you need to really consider this. Not one time. Through, through, through sex, through drugs, through jail time, could we ever get my brother lost? I believe the day's in the presence of God. But for a while, you look at him, and if you based it on the way we preach that sometimes, you would say there's no way he's saved. But then if you base it on the way he acted the last 10 years, you would say, yep, he's saved. Which one is it? Quit basing your salvation on you. That's a mind game the devil wants to work in your life. Let, let me give you one more. Here, here's, here's another reason. Unconfessed sin in your life. Now, now, Paul really helped me with this too. You all didn't think he knew his Bible, but he really does. <laughs> or he stole this from somebody, one of the two. But I made it a little bit better, so... 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. I think it'll be on the screen, Bryce. He that committeth sin is of the devil. This is the verse my dad told me to read when I was doubting my salvation. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. What? For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So I look at that and you think, okay, if I sin, I'm obviously not saved. But that would contradict with another verse in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. Look at this. You've got to compare Scripture to Scripture. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves in the truth that's not in us. Wait a second. Is John contradicting himself? What does all of this mean? All right, you can go back to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9 and understand, watch. He is writing this epistle to save people. He is. Not lost people. Here's what he's saying. Because of Adam and Eve, you were born a sinner and your flesh had complete power over you. Watch. When you got saved, God broke the chains of sin in your life. You became free from the power of sin, but not from the presence of sin. The flesh very much was alive in your life. And, and though you're free from, from being in bondage to that, okay, it doesn't mean you're free from the temptation of that. So when the verse says, whosoever is born of God, God doth not commit sin, it's not saying if you sin, you're not a Christian. John is writing to Christians. He's saying because you're saved, because you're born again, because you're a child of God, stop sinning. That's the verse. It's not... You sin so you can't be saved. It's no, you're saved, so why don't you try to stop sinning? He's preaching to a church of people that evidently were claiming to be saved, but yet 
weren't fighting sin like they should with the power of God in their life. And so, so he's saying, because of who you are and whose you are, stop. Now, I had one technical foul in my high school career of basketball. Brother Kay, you might remember this. We was at a tournament in Tennessee. John and Cindy, you were there with us. Dad was there. Brother Kay was there. And I don't know what got into me, but, but I apparently, according to the ref, made a foul. And then I was always the guard to go back during the, the two shot, uh, the foul shots there. I, I would go back behind the three-point line and wait for, you know, the rebounders to do their job. And so... I'm back there, and after he reports the foul, number 10, blue, blah, 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 I look at that ref, and I just yank out my jersey. And I start thugging out. Now, if you knew me, that wasn't me. I was a little bit chubby. I couldn't even grow peach fuzz. It just was so inauthentic. And I I just went like this, and Brother K... He might have grabbed me back in his younger days, but for sure he verbally abused me in that moment. And he said, get to the bench. My dad was there. I had a talk with my dad, and he wasn't fired up. Um, I think he knows the competitive juices get going. So through all of that, I mean, really through a lot of those episodes, he was pretty patient with TJ and I. But I remember my dad explaining to me um, something as, as to why that is a big deal. And he said this, and he said this on a number of occasions. He said, son, it's because of who you are. You're a praetor. And praetors don't do that. Well, praetors shouldn't do that. We're prone to do that, but don't do that. You're a praetor. Was my dad saying, because you got a technical foul, you're no longer a praetor? Son, there's no way you could be my son. You got a technical foul. No, one, that would be a lie. Number two, it's just absolutely absurd. I'm still very much his child. He's saying, because you are a praetor, cut it out. Stop. And that's exactly what John is telling This audience, he's saying, because you're a child of God, knock it off. That's not how you represent the family of God. Because of who you are and because of whose you are, quit acting like you're just a crazy, crazy, unrepentant sinner. It's not who you are. Stop acting that way. So what are we supposed to do? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not about being sinless. It's about confessing our sin regularly. And when, when, our, when our unconfessed sin mounts and it mounts and it builds up and it builds up and it builds up because we tolerate it in our life and we become insensitive to it and we quench the Holy Spirit of God, then I guarantee you the devil will begin to target our faith. And he'll begin to shoot his darts of doubt at us. And on a Friday night or a Saturday night, when we have tolerated sin again in our life, 
The devil will whisper in our ear, there's no way you're saved. Saved people don't talk like that. Saved people don't go there. Saved people don't drink that. Saved people don't think that way. Oh, you've struggled with this your whole life and never gotten victory. No way, you're saved. And it could be that you have gotten mounted up sin that you've tolerated. No one has ever loved you enough to confront you about it. And you treat it as a bad habit or as a family curse or as a personality weakness. When really it's a sin before a holy God. And you come to church with it and you leave church with it. And you go home with it and you leave home with it. And you go to work with it and you leave work with it. It's no wonder that at times you have to talk yourself into being saved. I'm still saved, I'm still saved, I'm still saved because I can remember, the, I can remember where I was. I know where I was. I, I know I'm saved. It's no wonder you just never feel like it. All right, one more and I'm done. I told you that I was done a second ago, but I really will be done with this point. Here's, here's the third reason why you doubt, and then we'll talk about assurance next week. If you're still with me, give me a few more minutes. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9 teaches us, here's another one, a failure to grow. Look at these verses. Just look at them. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your, what's that next word? Faith. Add to your faith. Okay, addition. Add to your faith these things, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. Next slide, and to knowledge, temperance, that's self-control. And to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Okay, that's, that is spiritual growth. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. It's clear as day. If you fail to let the Holy Spirit of God produce fruit in your life, you will come to a point where you can't even fathom being, being saved. There's no way I could be saved. You forgot, that, you forgot the feeling of being free. There's just no way. Tell you this. A couple years into to being on staff, we had a weight loss challenge. And I was asked to be in the weight loss challenge. If you're asked to be in a weight loss challenge, either that person's very confident in your friendship or they want to love you to Jesus. Well, I was, I was a prime candidate. And so I said, okay. Took the before picture and they said, you know, you got to put in a certain amount of, uh, of entry money and all of that. And at the end, the winner is going to get the full prize. I'm not sure if that's, if that's wrong or right, but... I tithed off of it, so I did put it all in. I, I got the before picture, and we went three months or so. Uh, my cousin Mindy was in it. My wife was in it. Uh, several others, about 12, 13, 14 people from the church in it. And we would meet every Tuesday and do these little weird exercises, and then we would drink herbal ice shakes for lunch uh, during the week. And I don't know if you ever, they taste like chalk with bananas in them. They're just <laughs> terrible. Um, but you will lose weight if you drink them. And I learned that, and I started exercising, started running, and all of that. And by the end of the thing, I had lost nearly 45 pounds. I was weighing 165 pounds. I know you can't even imagine that, but I, I was weighing 165 pounds, feeling amazing, running 8 to 10 miles at one time without stopping. I was like, geez, this is amazing. I was adding to my 
like life, some great habits, and it was awesome. And then we went to celebrate uh, the victory with the entire team at Applebee's, and they were going to give me the money and all this stuff. And I, I went ahead and just loaded up on unhealthy, carb-full food, and, and it was amazing. And, and you'd think, okay, that's just a one-time splurge, but it wasn't. I kept eating unhealthy food after that. And the weight loss challenge, it was, it was really just, just supposed to be the Kickstarter. It wasn't supposed to be the end goal. I was supposed to add to the weight loss challenge good, healthy habits. But I didn't. And some of you are shaking your head. You're like, yep, been there, guilty, done that, got the T-shirt. And that's exactly what happened. I went from, well, yeah, it's too small now, but I, I went from 165 to whatever you can imagine I weigh. <laughs> I, it, you can guess. Um, but it really is hard for me now to even fathom, Jenny, it's hard for me to even fathom that I weighed 155 pounds. I mean, I was legit skinny. I was like size 32, and I had big legs, and I, I was still sliding into a pair of 32s. I tell people all the time, I don't need to buy skinny jeans. I buy relaxed fit and make them look skinny. <laughs> it's just how the good Lord made me. I am a pair, but I am uniquely and wonderfully made. No one has my DNA or my fingerprint. I was not put on a conveyor belt. God loves me just like I am shaped. Anyway, the truth is, I've gotten way off course. None of us had to earn our salvation like I had to earn my prize money. But those of us that can go back to a place, we know we're saved. And God's plan is that salvation is a kickstarter. And we add to that good habits. Walking with God, falling deeply in love with his son Jesus. And letting the Holy Spirit produce in us things we could never produce in ourselves, like gentleness and patience and kindness and charity and brotherly kindness, all these things. But when you stop acting like you are and you start acting like you were, then you can't even fathom that you still are. You can't, even remember the, you can't even remember the last time it felt like you were just free, man. Because you just haven't been close to God in a long time. You've forgotten that you've been purged from your old sin. You've just established a bad way of thinking, bad habits, and the Holy Spirit's just not producing growth in your life. That's why you can come to church and it's like, man, I can pretend like I sing about these things and the instruments are great and all of that, but deep down inside, I just don't, I don't feel it. And that verse tells us why. So there it is, my transparent, raw testimony. And those reasons right there are reasons why I doubted for a long time. I want to tell you, I can't wait to tell you how the Lord brought me to a point of 100% certainty. And I know you're thinking, I'll, I'll never get to that point, but that's what I thought. See, see when, when, when I raised my hand every invitation time, and they said, if you're saved, raise your hand, you know the thing we do. I would always raise my hand. But inside, I would always say this. I hope that one day I get to the day where I can raise my hand and I'm not even sort of lying. I am so confident. I'm like my dad, 
confident. I'm like Brother Landis confident. I'm like the preacher confident. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to heaven and nothing scares me. I can't wait till I get to that point. And I never truly thought it would ever happen. I thought this is just something I'll wrestle with. And, and hopefully when I'm 85 or 90 years old and I'm on a deathbed, maybe assurance will come over me before I, I take my last breath. And I'll, whew, okay, I know I'm saved. That is no way to live. And I'm telling you, I know. I know. I don't have to make anything up. Nothing. No front, no fake. I know. Do you? Do you? Maybe you're thinking, will I ever? Let's just start by the fact that, that, that if you're doubting, that doesn't mean you're lost. I would say more than likely, so long as you know it's not Holy Spirit conviction, you're saved. I don't, I, don't, I don't mind saying that at all. And it's just some things you need to put in practice in your life to strengthen that faith, and that's what we'll talk about next Sunday. I don't know if you need to talk to God tonight. Maybe so. Let's take a few minutes to do it. Stand to your feet. Father, I love